Kira Koto Kato, everyone. Um, welcome and thank you for coming. Um, the universe is 13.8 billion years old, and we're going to try and work out how all the elements came together and made up for us to be here today. Because, you know, it's like when the universe was first formed, it was only hydrogen and helium. So, how did that all come together to make the complex elements we need for life for us to be here? And the other question is, why did it take so long? <laughs> right? Because it took 13.8 billion years for us to be here. A um, bit more of an introduction about myself. Um, I'm uh, JJ or Jan Eldridge. Um, I'm an associate professor at the University of Auckland. I'm an astrophysicist, so I do uh, physics using the stars. Um, I'm the current head of department of physics, and um, my pronouns are she, her, and them, they. And I study exploding binary stars while exploding the myth of a gender binary. What I'm going to tell you about today is going to be about that universe. It's going to be complicated. I'm going to be talking about lots of things, nuclear physics, and you're going to be captivated how wonderful the universe is, because everyone normally is, because it's spacey stuff. And um, all I'm sharing you with my pronouns and the fact that I'm transgender with you, and all that means is that my gender does not align with that I was assigned at birth. And trying why I share that I'm transgender is just because everything, we're just as complicated as the universe, and so it's just trying to break down that understanding. Um, and that we're all complicated, and we all have things about us that is um, something we need to learn about from each other. So let's get on with this idea that we had this universe when it was formed. Um, after a few minutes, like one or two minutes, the universe started forming stuff. It was really hot before that, just a seething mess of energy. But then particles started appearing, and the first particles to appear were things called protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now, protons have a positive charge, electrons have an equal and opposite negative charge, and together they can form an element, an atom, which is hydrogen, where you've got your electron orbiting around your proton, and that's really good, because if you're a chemist, you get really excited, because, you know, that's your electron, that's where all the chemistry comes from. It's electrons interacting together. And in the first three minutes of the universe, which, considering that was 13.8 billion years ago, and we can measure that it was three minutes, that, that's quite a short time period for such a long time scale to go back to that time. In the first three minutes, it didn't just stop with making hydrogen atoms. There was enough protons and neutrons around, and they were whizzing around fast enough they could collide together. And so protons and neutrons could come together to form the next element that we have in the in the universe, which is helium, which has got two protons, two neutrons, and two electrons whizzing around it. But it couldn't do anything else. After three minutes, the universe had continued to expand and cool, and those nuclear reactions stopped, which means that if you was a chemist in the early universe, not that you could be a chemist in the early universe, because there was nothing else around. It was very boring. You only had this hydrogen and helium. There was no other elements for them to react with. So we was kind of stuck with what was going on. So that's where stars come into the picture, because stars are those engines of change. They're the ones that are making these elements to actually try and make the heavy elements that make us. And so we're going to start our story with our best star, our closest star, which is the sun. And so the sun is very close. Okay, so audience participation time. What are three things that you can tell me about the sun that you've observed? It's hot. That's a good one. A second one. Gas. It's gas. That that that's that's the thing. Go and see. It's round. Yes. So the sun is hot, round, and bright. Was the other one, right? Because it's very bright. And all stars are hot, round, and bright. 
um, the surface of the sun, and actually it's round tells you something. It round tells you it's very massive. It's got enough mass to pull itself into this spherical shell that we see. And the surface is very hot. It's 6,000 degrees Celsius, which is a lot hotter than it is in this room. Um, but if we go in the interior, the sun becomes hotter and hotter. And at the center, it's 20 million degrees Celsius. Now that's hot enough that we can begin the same process of fusion, of making heavier elements that we did in the early universe. So in the early universe, we had these protons and neutrons smashing together to form helium. But the sun is only hydrogen and only helium. So we don't have those neutrons lying around. And it's hot enough that those protons can again smash together. One of those protons turns into a neutron by, I'll call particle physics magic. And when it does that, it releases a neutrino, which I'll come back to in a minute because it's important. So we have the protons, which are the hydrogen in the sun, colliding together to form another form of hydrogen because it's got one proton, one neutron. And then another proton comes together and you get two protons, one neutron, which is a version of helium, but not proper helium. But then those two lighter heliums smash together to make the helium we know, which has got two protons, two neutrons, with two, two spare protons that, if you do your sums correctly, shouldn't be there, just fly off and go into the next reactions. But we have helium. So the sun is doing the same reaction that it did in the early universe, but inside our star. And it's making lots of helium from that hydrogen. And why do we know this is the case? You know, because, you know, I've just made this story up. Why do you believe me? You're looking at me going like, really? Um, what is some evidence, right? This is important when we have science, when we tell you things, we need to back it up with evidence. There is another way that the sun could be powering itself. And that's where it would be collapsing and getting smaller. So there's actually a very good way of showing how gravity can release energy, right? So I've actually got quite a lot of energy and I'm going to jump off the stage and my gravitational potential is going to become negative because I'm going down towards the ground. And you're going to hear what happens to that energy I release by decreasing my potential energy. And so stars can do that in a much more gentle and gradual way but the sun could also be powering itself by colliding down and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And this is actually what stars do. Back four and a half billion years ago, the sun would have been a big gas cloud and it collapsed down to actually become the sun. And it wasn't until it collapsed down to the stage that you could get to the temperatures in the core for nuclear fusion that you actually started having that process of nuclear fusion. Now we know it's not gravitational contraction because if you do your sums, and people did this about a hundred years ago, you find out the sun is only about 20 million years old if it's powered by gravitational contraction, right? That, that, that's bad because then if you go and talk to a geologist, they get all excited about rocks and you'd ask them like, what's the oldest rock that you have? And the geologist goes, ah, it's four and a half billion years old. We've got a problem, right? Those two ages, one is very much bigger than the other. And we knew that the earth must have been very, very old, much older than 20 million years. Because if you look at the rocks, you know the processes that are in those rocks take billions of years to occur. And so again, this confused people a hundred years ago, and we just didn't know. And so then we started learning about nuclear physics and we started realizing, well, maybe you can get this energy from this nuclear fusion. Because just like when you get things smaller of me jumping off the stage, if you have two protons come together and they lock together by what we term the strong nuclear force, they get much more negative energy, just like me getting more negative potential by jumping off the stage. And that releases heat into the sun. And if you do your sums, 
then you get an age for the sun of four and a half billion years. And in fact, the sun will last for 10 billion years by this energy because you get so much energy out of nuclear fusion. And you know, you've got um, the flames over there and the fire in the far distance of the bar as energy being produced by chemistry. And that's coming from the electrons around those atoms, with the electrons being exchanged between the different elements. Nuclear fusion, where you're in the nucleus, which is very much smaller in the center of the nucleus, is coming so much more energy. It's a million times more energy per reaction than you get anything from anything chemists can do. If you're a chemist in the room, I'm really sorry. Okay, this is good. There's no chemists in the room. I can be nasty to them. So atoms are actually quite small. And if you were to look at your arm, which is about a meter in length, and if you were to think of a line of atoms, the length of your arm, you would have 10 billion, yep, that's right, the number, 10 billion along the length of your arm, because each atom is about a 10 billionth of a meter in size. The nucleus, those protons and neutrons at the center of the atom are even tinier. And if you were to place all the nuclei along your arms, you would have a million billion along your arms. So they're actually like within the size of the nucleus, they're only 100,000 times smaller. So if you, this hall was the size of a um, atom, a dust particle in the center would be how big the um, nucleus is. And that's why it's much more energetic because things get so much closer together and can release more energy. So that's what the sun's doing. What else do we know apart from the lifetime if you remember, the first step in that reaction was those two protons smashing together, one of them turning into a neutron. It emitted a neutrino, I, I said by particle physics magic, and it is literally, um, but it's like physics magic, so it's real. And um, those neutrinos are interesting particles because they don't interact with anything, right? If, if neutrinos interacted with stuff in this room, you would know about them, right? I'm guessing that most of you haven't heard of neutrinos before. Maybe, no. Yeah. So there's 100 billion going through your fingernail right now per second. And so over your entire lifetime, that's how many neutrinos have been going through you, billions upon trillions, and we've never felt anything. We can detect them if you build a big cavern two kilometers underground, fill it full of dry cleaning fluid, and then you wait for the one lucky neutrino that changes the chemistry of the, of the dry cleaning fluid so you can detect that neutrino then you can pick it up and then you can see it and you can detect neutrinos. So today we can take pictures of the sun in neutrinos and we actually can know that that's the number of neutrinos coming from the sun because we can detect them. And so that's the other piece of evidence that we have that the sun's experiencing nuclear fusion in its center and it's making these heavy elements. Eventually though, that core, everything will become helium because there's only so much hydrogen in the sun, and that's what it's doing. It's using up its fuel just like any normal fire. So you form a pure helium core, which is great if you like parties and you like having helium balloons, right? It's great if you want to, um, you know, also make your voice sound funny. You can like inhale the helium, just not too much because then you can suffocate. It's, it's bad. That's, that's the health and safety briefing for this evening. Um, when you get this helium core in the star, there's again not much it can do. But what happens is that core collapses, just like it was, because there's no nuclear fusion. So actually, the, these fusion reactions at the center of all stars are stopping it from collapsing. And when they end, when it runs out of fuel, they collapse until the next stage of fusion occurs. So in the sun with helium, you collapse down until you start getting helium nuclei smashing together because it's got hotter, so the particles of helium can move faster. But then they fall apart again. So they try to form beryllium, 
but beryllium's not stable enough unless it has an extra neutron and there's no extra neutrons around, so again they fall apart. But they stick together just long enough that an extra helium nucleus can come along to smash into the beryllium and form carbon, which is a really important element because all of you are carbon-based life forms. Right? There's an entire field of chemistry called organic chemistry just because of how interesting carbon molecules are. But then every so often, when there's enough carbon, when it's like half the mass of the core has become carbon and the rest is helium, you actually can start smashing helium nuclei into the carbon to form oxygen. And so you end up with the entire core of the star becoming carbon and oxygen. Now, you, you all know oxygen is really important, right? Right, you're breathing it now. That's good, right? Stars had to make the oxygen for you to breathe. The bad news, as you'll see in a minute, is it's not from these stars. So I've just wasted loads of time telling you about oxygen. You, you, you're not breathing. When the sun was doing this nuclear burning, it actually looks very different. And so, you know, this is not the sun. The sun won't do this for another four or five billion years. But we're talking about sun-like stars. And when stars go through these final stages, when it's got this helium core, when it contracts, the rest of the star does something very funny. It experiences one of the best words in astrophysics, which is erythrogigantism, which is a great word to insult people with because it means it gets big and red. So I'm not allowed to have slides in this talk, but with this dress, you can see that um, I've actually got stars on it, and it's the star cluster Omega Centauri. So if you ever have to give a talk without slides, get a dress made of the stuff you're talking about. It's, it's a pro tip. Um, so on the dress, you know, if you look at image of an Omega Centauri, which you can find from Google, you've got lots of white dots, which are sun-like stars that are still on the main sequence, still burning hydrogen to helium. But on the dress and on Omega Centauri, you can also see like red stars, very bright red stars and um, very bright blue stars. Now the blue stars will come to in a minute, but the red stars are sun's stars that have got their helium core and they're fusing helium to those heavier elements. Um, and so when the core is collapsing, it's almost like a mirror effect, which is a term I really hate using, that the envelope expands because it's the leftover hydrogen that's not being burnt to helium. And it just gets really far away from the white dwarf and the star tries to expand. When the sun does this, the, excuse me, the bad news is for the sun, it'll actually swallow Mercury and Venus and maybe Earth. But this is in five billion years time. So do get your life insurance policies. And, you know, the helium core is still growing because even though um, it's, it's all helium in the center, it can still grow and burn hydrogen to helium at the surface. It can't do any more nuclear fusion than that. So when it's got the carbon-oxygen core, it stops and that collapses down again until it gets to a point where it's supported because it can't collapse any further, right? Like if I tried to squeeze you all onto one table and try and squeeze you in closer together, you know, at some point, which would all get very grumpy and would try and, like, push me away because I was trying to squeeze you all onto the same table. The same is true with this, and it's called degeneracy pressure because you can't put two particles in the same space. So that's the dead end for the core of the sun or sun-like star. But the envelope is still expanding. And at the edge of the core, there's still these burning reactions going on. And they're really intense. And that entire envelope, as it gets bigger and bigger, gets more and more dynamic and dredges up material that's being made at the edge of the core into the envelope, which is then lost, because eventually all that hydrogen goes into the space, the, all the hydrogen envelope goes off into the universe to form the next generation of stars, leaving behind the core, which we call a white dwarf star. So all that carbon and oxygen and helium I spent a couple of minutes explaining uh, where it, how it's made uh, stays in the white dwarf.
But that final stage is the death of a star like our sun. That's where that carbon and nitrogen, the elements it actually makes, that gets ejected out into the universe. And so the carbon and nitrogen in your bodies, nitrogen is really important because that's really important for like our amino acids and their chemistry. That come from stars like our sun dying earlier in the universe. So that's pretty impressive. And this is the story. It's always these stars, how they die, that we know what's going on. And so we've got carbon oxygen, but it's locked away. We can't get to it. We get a little bit of carbon and nitrogen, but there's lots of these stars. So that's why there's lots of carbon in the room. Um, and you also get some other heavier elements like um, barium and lead and a really interesting one called technetium, which is my favorite element. And there's no technetium in this room. In theory, all the elements up to lead are stable, apart from this one. It should be stable, but it's not. It's the odd one out. It has a half-life of 100,000 years, so it's not in this room. We make it on Earth in like nuclear reactors. So do stars, and we can see it in dying sun-like stars. And because we see it there, we know nuclear fusion reactions, these ones making the carbon and nitrogen, are being made in those stars. And we can see these fresh elements coming off. But they're not useful for life. Right, and this talk is about the life elements, which are the important ones. So what have we got so far? Carbon and nitrogen, great. We've got hydrogen from exploding universe, carbon and nitrogen from dying sun-like stars, but we still need oxygen because we have, we've made oxygen, but it's locked away in the, these white dwarf stars, we can't get it. We need iron for our hemoglobin in our blood to be able to carry oxygen around our bodies. We need magnesium for chlorophyll, uh, we need calcium for our bones. So where do we get these from? So we need to start thinking about how other stars evolve. And so I'm going to now talk about massive star, eight times the mass of the sun. It, it does exactly like the sun does. It's been hydrogen to helium, helium to carbon oxygen, and then what? So a sun-like star stops and becomes a white dwarf. A massive star has enough mass that it has more gravity pushing at the center. So the temperature at the center of the star can get bigger. So whereas hydrogen burning, burning hydrogen to helium takes 20 million degrees Kelvin, helium to carbon takes 100 million degrees Kelvin. If you can go beyond that up to a billion degrees Kelvin, Kelvin and Celsius are pretty much the same unit when we get to this um, level. I should just say, I should have defined what Celsius is and Kelvin is, but that measures the temperature and they're basically the same. We can burn carbon, and so we take carbon and it smashes two carbon nuclei together, as you do. You get oxygen and neon, and then you can smash your neon atoms together and you get oxygen and magnesium. Then you smash your oxygen atoms together and you get um, silicon. And each time you've stopped this, you do your nuclear fusion reaction, the star stops its collapse, and then when it's used up all its fuel, it collapses down again. It gets denser and denser and denser. And you actually get lots of shells of all these elements, but at the core it keeps on going, and you get to silicon and then you get to iron. And it stops. But why? Well, because iron is the most stable element in the universe. You get energy out from putting fusing and making heavier and heavier elements all the way up to iron. On Earth, we have another type of power called nuclear fission, which is where we split atoms apart. And that's where we take heavier elements and make them lighter. Again, they go towards iron, which is at this peak. It's the most stable element. So it's like the smallest type of nucleus you can make by trying to squeeze it together. And by going up to that, you get out all the energy. If you try and smash iron nuclei together, you end up having to put in energy to make those heavier elements. So there's a problem there. 
Um, and actually, I should have said this earlier, but if you're going from hydrogen to helium, there you get 90% of the energy you can get going from a proton to ion. That's 90% of the energy. Everything after helium is just like 10%. And so stars like our sun have really long main sequence lifetimes because that's where most of the energy comes from. And so like the final burning stages for a massive star where it's burning all the silicon to iron takes like half an hour because there's so little energy around. And what's really happening when you've got silicon, you're not smashing silicon atoms together. You're basically trying to squeeze all these silicon atoms in a box and shaking it really hardly, um, which is an interesting kind of thing to think about. And they all sort of like come between iron. So this is interesting because again, what's actually going to happen at the end? You're going to lock away all these elements I'm talking about for so long inside a remnant. You're not going to get rid of them. But when you've made this iron core, it's about one and a half times the mass of the sun. It's about the size of the Earth. So it's like, you know, that's like if, if this Earth was this iron core, um, it would have like 330,000 times the mass. So the gravity where you're sitting right now would be 330,000 times, right? Which is seriously heavy metal. Like, I wish heavy metal music was actually as good as that. Like, that heavy, that'd be great. I don't like heavy metal music. I'm just trying to make a joke. So we've got this iron core. It's one and a half times the mass of the sun. It's the size of the Earth. And it's got no other nuclear fusion energy source. So it just collapses down. And it's nothing can stop it. And as it collapses down, it converts lots of protons to neutrons. Basically, you squeeze electrons and protons together, and they become these neutral particles at the core. And you form a massive neutron star, which is this one huge giant nu nucleus. But it's the size of a star. It's the mass of the star, and it's all neutrons. It's 12 kilometers across. And it's got the mass of the sun in it. So imagine taking something the size of the Earth and squeezing it down to something the size of Auckland. That's the kind of size and scale of things we're talking about. That releases a lot of energy, right? Because it collapses down and bounces off itself. So literally what does happen, like when I jumped off the stage and made the loud bang. Sorry, I wanted to do that again, because why not? Um, it collapses down and bounces off itself and actually sends a shockwave of sound through the star. And where you've converted all those protons to neutrons, you've released a load of neutrinos again. But this time, they're not ghostly particles, because the material around that neutron star is also really dense. And you can trans like 1% of those neutrinos being released interact and transfer all the energy into the rest of the star that explodes. Now you're thinking, oh, how much energy, Jan? Because that's like, you know, you're, you've talked about all of this, and like you're saying it's a lot of energy, but how much? The energy our sun will release over its 10 billion year lifetime, right? So if you imagine feeling the sun's light on you for 10 billion years, that's the amount of energy released by that neutron star when it collapses in a few seconds. So a few seconds, 10 billion years, same energy. That's quite a dramatic explosion. And so while you've taken all these elements, all this other iron and heavy stuff and dumped it into the neutron star, which is really boring, you've put lots of energy into the rest of the stuff that's still there. It becomes really hot, and you get explosive nuclear synthesis. And what's better is not only do you get all these nuclear reactions going off explosively, and you make something like half a solar mass of oxygen, and calcium, and magnesium, and other interesting heavy elements, like those intermediate mass elements, but they get ejected into the, the galaxy as well to go into the next generations of stars. And so all the oxygen you're breathing right now comes from those exploding massive stars. And it's only when stars die do we actually get those elements out. 
But now we're at an interesting stage where we've got carbon, we've got nitrogen, we've got oxygen. The other thing is about lifetimes of stars. So solar-like stars take hundreds of millions of years or billions of years to evolve to actually um, die. Whereas massive stars, because they're actually bigger and more massive and hotter, they burn through their fuel faster. So they have a million-year lifetime. And so when we actually look back in the history of the universe with those images that JWST was recently releasing, that um, JWST, when we look at those galaxies that are forming maybe only a few hundred million years after the universe was formed, they're mostly got hydrogen, helium, and the one other element we can see is oxygen. There's no carbon in those galaxies. There's no nitrogen. There's no iron. There hasn't been time for the low-mass stars and other stars to evolve to produce the other elements. So we can see oxygen. Actually, it was really exciting seeing all the press releases, people looking at those pretty images. I was not excited about those. I was excited about the fact that in those really early galaxies, we could see oxygen so clearly. And it tells us something about how stars evolve by how um, that oxygen is built up over time. Okay, so where are we? We don't have iron, which is a really important thing because otherwise our blood won't work and we won't be able to transport the oxygen around our body. We also don't have um, things like gold, rare earths, things that are important for modern technology. So where do they come from? And this is the problem where we need to have binary stars because basically all stars evolve in the way I've described, right? which is either dying like the sun or exploding in this supernovae. But most stars are not single like our sun. Our sun isn't really alone, right? It's got us. It's much more happier having us than another stellar companion. But 50% of the stars in the universe had a binary companion. So you've seen one if you've watched Star Wars. Tatooine orbits a binary star system, and this is just two stars orbiting around each other, which is fine and normal. They evolve just like our sun would until they get big and red. Because when they get big, if they've got another star nearby, it can get to a point where it's big enough where that other star can capture some of the material by gravity and transfer it to the other star. And actually what happens is all the hydrogen that's around the core gets ripped off much quicker, the other star becomes more massive, and you get a white dwarf. But on a much shorter time scale than if it was just a single star like our sun, because the binary interactions are quite quick. Other things can also happen. So this is actually the, the so binary stars are my career. I've been doing them for 20 years. I'm trying to make them exciting. And there's so much I could tell you about them, but I've only got, what, 10 minutes left? Okay, 10 minutes left. And so if you actually look at this dress, you can see the red stars and you can see the blue stars. Now, um, the red stars are cool, much cooler than the sun, and the blue stars are hotter than the sun. And stars that are hotter than the sun are much more luminous. And that's because actually when you get binaries, sometimes stars can merge and they actually become more massive. And so actually the stars in this cluster that are blue and bright blue are what we term blue stragglers because they've been formed by these binary stars and mass transfers and stars becoming more massive, which they wouldn't do if every star was single. Um, you'll also have noticed, hopefully, that where I'm talking about hot stars are blue and cold stars are red, you'll have appreciated how dangerous it is for me to go to the bathroom. Right? I'm not talking about the fact I'm a trans person going to the bathroom. I'm talking about the fact that when I go and use the taps, I have to remind myself there are human taps, not stellar taps. Right? Because hot is blue and cool is red. 
it's really dangerous. I'm really glad at this bar they actually just have a tap that gives you nice warm water. It's fantastic. It's very, very sensitive to astronomers. We don't have to dice with like a possible trip to A&E because we get our hands scolded. It's great. Thank you. Thank you to the bar. It's fantastic. Um, but what can happen in these binary star systems is that you've got this white dwarf and another star. And if you ever want to see a system like this, Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, the bright star is a main sequence star that captured some of the material from its companion, which is a white dwarf, which you can't see unless you have a telescope. But in the future, Sirius A will get big and transfer mass over to the other star. And if it does it at just the right rate, that white dwarf will get bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets to the point where it collapses and it gets hot enough to actually then ignite carbon. The problem is it's so dense that it actually explodes and doesn't ignite carbon nicely, in quotation marks, it ignites it explosively. And all the carbon and all the oxygen in that white dwarf is converted to an iron. So you suddenly get all that carbon oxygen exploded within a few seconds into a solar mass worth of technically nickel, which then decays via radioactive decay to iron. So you get a solar mass's worth of iron. The iron in your blood has come from an exploding sun-like star in a binary star system. So that's quite remarkable. So we both need to have the single stars to actually make the oxygen and most of the light elements we need for life. But that really important iron that we need for like also like it's probably in this roof and in the floor underneath it. So I hope it was a really good supernova that made that iron because otherwise we're in trouble with the building. But it's the iron that is complex and has all these electrons that does really wonderful chemistry to be able to carry the oxygen around your body so you can live. And sorry, that just kind of makes me quite, wow, because it is a cool thought. So the final bit to this story that I'm going to wrap up in five minutes is what happens when you have massive stars in a binary. And so you've got these stars that are very much more massive. They form neutron stars. They've had explosions. Now, because the supernovae are so violent, only 1% or less than 1% of those binary systems with two massive stars, both have supernovae, will form binary neutron star systems. So you have two of the remnants whizzing around each other. And when you have that, they are so dense that they actually cause ripples in space-time. And so it's like the gravitational equivalent of light. So when you look at light, what you're actually looking at is um, electric charges whizzing around and producing waves in electromagnetism, which is light. Gravitational waves are where you've got two positive gravitational charges, really heavy charges, whizzing around, and they're causing waves in gravitation. And that takes away energy from the orbit. So it shrinks in closer and closer and closer, and they speed up until they touch. And we've detected the first one of these by um, gravitational um, wave observations, where we could actually hear, because of their ripples and their frequencies, the frequencies of these orbits. And when you convert the signal into sound, it literally sounds like. It's called a chirp. And it literally sounds like that. You can go on Google and say gravitational wave chirp, and that's what it plays at you. And when they get that whoop, that's when the two neutron stars have smashed into each other, made a black hole. And so actually, that's a problem, right? Because if you can imagine, if you make these white dwarfs, you make these neutron stars, you lock all those elements away. If you make a black hole, everything goes in there. Nothing can come out. So it's actually, in this story of stardust, it's useless because you know black holes are just boring. But 
because it's been rotating so quickly, some of the neutrons get thrown out into the universe. And so you've got blobs of neutrons which are unstable. And they really quickly decay down into heavy nuclei, things like uranium and thorium, so radioactive nasty elements, but also other things like gold, silver, platinum, iridium, yttrium, praseodymium. Elements you don't hear, well, okay, gold, silver, and platinum you hear every day, but the other ones you don't, but they're important for things like car batteries, the batteries in your phone, the screens in your mobile phone. They need those rare Earths, and they're rare because they come from these really rare stellar collisions of neutron stars. Right? And so actually we can pick together where these elements come from because, you know, solar-like stars like our sun form a little bit of carbon and nitrogen, but there's a lot of them. Most of the stars in the universe are like our sun. Massive stars, there's not many of them, not many of them exploding supernovae, but they produce a half solar mass of oxygen each time they explode. That's a lot. Stars like our sun in binary star systems, when they become exploding white dwarfs, produce a solar mass, which is a lot of iron in rare events. So they have all equal amounts of probability. When we look in the Earth, it's mostly oxygen followed by uh, carbon, uh, silicon, and iron, because they're the kind of most common elements from those explosions. But the rare Earths and precious metals like gold and silver are rare because they come from the rarest type of stellar death in the universe which is kind of exciting. Although I'm not too sure, like, you know, how that goes. Like, here, have this jewelry, my love. It's made from dead stars. I ripped it off the course of the neutron star as it was being spread into the black hole. Maybe that's... I'll come up with a more romantic way of putting that. Don't worry. I'm sure you can do that. <laughs> um, but when we look at this entire thing, we piece all these different uh, stories together. We're left with this understanding that, you know, we can see the progression of the elements through the history of the universe. We can see within our galaxy, when we're looking at the older stars, their compositions are different. The older ones are more oxygen rich and they don't have much of these other heavier elements. It's taken time for this to build up. But by studying that change in the elements over the history of the universe, we learn about stars. But in all of this, we're really learning about ourselves, right? Because the sun is four and a half billion years old. So it formed when the universe is nine billion years old, roughly, if I do my maths right. Um, and so the universe took 9 billion years to get to the point where the composition of everything was right, that the sun could form and the planets could form. And then it took an extra 4.5 billion years for the planets to form and for life to exist. And then in the last million years, humans have evolved to the point where we are today, that we can actually look back over that entire history and appreciate the story of how the universe and the stars have produced the elements for us to be here today, which is the basic punchline of this talk which is that we are, this is what Carl Sagan said, so I'm stealing it, we are a way for the universe to know itself, right? You're all stardust and exploding universe. You're mostly water, right? So you're mostly coming from exploding stars and exploding universe, which is the hydrogen. Um, water is made of oxygen and hydrogen. So, you know, if you ever need to get motivated in the morning, just remember you've got explosive power from the universe trying to get you up. I hope that's an interesting thing to think about, that that's, the deep connection that you have to the universe over the deep time and scales and distances within the universe, it's come together to get to us together in this room to be able to think about it and where we come from. I hope you found that interesting. I'm more than I'm happy to answer any questions. So please ask them. There are no stupid questions. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, so where does the energy come from to get those two protons together? Because it's just so... 
Yep. <sighs> sorry, that was because a big you, sorry. Sorry. So you said it releases energy. Yeah, but why does it get to that point? Yeah. Okay, because this is a small audience, I can scare you a bit. Right, so the sun would have formed out of a massive gas cloud that's about a light year across. And it would have collapsed down slowly over probably around about 100,000 years to a million years or so. And as it collapses down, it heats up. And so that's where some of that heat gets from. So each time a star basically keeps on collapsing down until it gets to the point where the temperature at the center is hot enough that particles are moving. Now, a deep thought is that actually what is temperature? And it's not a conserved quantity. Temperature is actually how fast things are moving. So these lights are probably pretty hot, and that's because the molecules in the atoms and the nuclei are moving really fast. Um, if you cool things down, things move slower. So at temperatures of 20,000 degrees Kelvin, which is that heat has come about because the stars collapse down, it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. You can think about it in terms of me jumping off the stage and there's a sound. If you compress down something, things will collide off each other. And that's where the energy gets released to heat things up. But when it gets to 20 million degrees Celsius, the particles are moving fast enough, they come together. And um, I can now throw in quantum mechanics. If actually you wanted to have the sun hot enough for two um, protons to come together and touch, um, it would be something like a trillion, billion, billion Kelvin. Ridiculously hot. There's nowhere that hot in the universe. But what happens is they come just close enough that quantum mechanics takes over. And that's where, they, where the quantum mechanical magic. I want to be a quantum magician. Maybe, no, maybe, okay, that's going too far. Anyway, they, th that's when they happen and that's when they stick together because they can tunnel through and stick together in the quantum mechanics. Um, and it only happens at that temperature. And so all these temperatures of all these nuclear fusion reactions, the same thing is happening. They're just coming close enough that they can just stick together because something else makes them linch together. But it's the temperature that's there which has come about from the collapsing. So for the helium, the next stage, again, that has to collapse down the core to it becomes denser because if it's denser, things are also closer together and they're traveling faster so they can smash together and stick. I hope that answers the question. So 13.8 billion years ago, there was the Big Bang and there was a bunch of energy um, and the universe is constantly expanding and because of a Gibbs free energy, uh, everything wants to be in a more disordered state. Will one day the universe stop expanding and collapse? The universe is expanding, right? You're right, but we don't know what's going to happen. It's not going to collapse again, because if now we can actually measure how much stuff there is in the universe, and if there is enough stuff to actually collapse, we'd be able to see it and detect it. So we know that the universe is expanding. What's worse is we know it's expanding faster and faster. There's actually something called dark energy, which is the bigger the universe gets, the more it tries to make the universe expand faster. So the universe, in theory, in the future, if you're looking in the far future of the universe, everything will whiz away from us. We'll have our own galaxy that we'll know about, but we won't be able to see other galaxies because they'll be moving away from us too fast. Um, the really depressing thing, and I set this as an exam question once, but the good news is none of the students actually did the exam question. So they didn't end up working out the answer and then getting depressed in the, in the exam. Um, because 95% of all the stars that will ever form in the universe have already formed. Because the universe is expanding, if you look at a per volume area, only 5% of all the stars that will ever be in the universe are going to form in the future. 
So actually what we're going towards is not a big crunch, it's just a really dull whimper dying away where we'll have no stars and everything will just be cooling down remnants of white dwarfs, black holes and uh, neutron stars. The longest lived stars are about a tenth of the mass of the sun and they have a hundred trillion year lifetimes. So if you start going all science fiction-y and looking at the far future of the universe, that's the kind of stars you need to start living around to exist around. Um, so yeah, so I hope that answers your history. You can actually look on Wikipedia, they've got a history of the universe in the future, um, which is, it's so far in the future, it's, it's, it's kind of not so depressing, but it is depressing that there is a fundamental limit to where life can exist as we know it. Hi, I have two questions. You said the dwarf stars, what happens to it? It just floats around the universe. And the second question is, you know sometimes when we see in the night sky, the star falling, what is it that we're seeing? Okay, I'll answer the first question first. So white dwarfs literally are just, they're just hot embers, right? When you have a fire and the fire goes out, you have the hot embers. That's what you can think of as those white dwarfs. You can think of neutron stars as kind of the same way, but they take a lot longer to cool off because they're so small. But with white dwarfs, we can actually see them going on something we call the cooling track. So their radius is constant, but as they cool off, their luminosity decreases. And um, there was a space mission called Gaia recently, which is measuring the distances to about a billion stars in our galaxy. Our galaxy has about 200 billion, so it's not that many, but it's still quite a lot. And the structures we're seeing in the white dwarfs and how they cool off, even though I've made them seem quite boring because they just cool off and eventually they come some, become something which will be a black dwarf because it will be as cool as the universe and so you wouldn't be able to see it. Um, but there will still be stuff unlike a black hole. Um, we can actually, there's new physics we're learning from these white dwarfs as they cool off. So they, they're, they're actually kind of exciting if you're that kind of astronomer that finds them exciting, which personally I don't, but that's okay. It's, it's all interesting physics we're learning. Um, so yeah, they, they are quite boring, unless they're in binary star systems, in which case they explode as those supernovae make lots of iron. The other question, which is about shooting stars, which are about meteorites. So um, this reminds me of a time my cousin asked me exactly the same question. So when I got my PhD, I had found out that in Europe, um, people who had PhDs used to have parties when you get your PhD, which seems sensible, right? Why would you not have a party and invite your friends along? So um, I invited my family up to the place where I did my PhD, and we had a nice uh, barbecue out deal. It was actually really fantastic, and I gave a talk about my research, and my cousin asked exactly the same question. And it's a really good question, because there's so much in astronomy in the night sky that you can get mixed up. So um, those things you're seeing when you see a shooting star is a meteor. And actually, that's not a star, it's a piece of space rock. It's an um, asteroid or a comet, or a little piece of it, hitting through the atmosphere and heating up, and that's what you see. And there was a few, like a few weeks ago, and there was big asteroid impacts, and people had them on video, so you know, they're always there. And that's interesting, because that's still the process of planet formation going on. If you look at how the planets formed, right? So I talked about the star forming, and the sun forming, and getting hotter. But then around that was a disk that was forming where the planets formed from, from the same stuff as the sun. And it was formed by all these collisions of lots of asteroid-type bodies. There's many fewer asteroids and comets now, but they still hit the Earth. And if you actually want to find some of this dust, you can volunteer to go and clean the gutters of, your, of someone or a house. And if you use a magnet on the gutter dust, some of that is magnetic. And the magnetic gutter dust is the meteorite stuff that you've seen dissolved just gone onto the atmosphere, onto the roof, and been washed into the gutter, because the process of star formation is going on. 
I'm going to feed off your question one more time because the important point is that all the elements that are in our sun and our earth and our planet were set four and a half billion years ago when the sun was formed and the planets were formed. And so, you know, you might think, why did I tell you all this story? Because, you know, that's when the composition of the earth was set. An interesting thing is that within the geological record of earth, there's evidence that a nearby supernova a few million years ago exploded and some of those elements actually hit the earth. So it's not just when you see a shooting star or a meteor. A meteor is when it's going through the sky. A meteorite is if it lands on the ground and you pick it up. That's from the pre-solar, or that's from the solar nebula, the same stuff that we're made of. But sometimes there are events where that material can come from a new event and change that composition. And we can see that in there. So that process of planet formation and even formation of our sun is still ongoing, which is kind of wonderful. Thank you, everyone.